I went to a marvelous party. Christopher, this is only going to work if we speak one at a time. Fine, you first, Eric. From the Sunset Strip in beautiful West Hollywood, California, it's The Dinner Party Show, the Internet's first live comedy variety show, with your hosts, New York Times best-selling authors, Christopher Rice. No, there's actually a new study that confirms every other child you see on the street is a ghost. <laughs> and Eric Shaw Quinn. I don't want to talk too much, but... Okay, no, no. We're going to no, no. take up a collection for the stained glass window. Now we want the dirt. Featuring reports from their largely unqualified staff of special correspondents. Sex is like Christmas. It's the not knowing what you're going to get that makes it exciting. New York is a giant trash island infested by has-been theater queens. If we're really serious about cutting federal spending, the biggest waste of public funds I can think of is Congress. Two snaps for Jesus! The Dinner Party Show. Everyone gets served. Tonight's live cast is streaming to you live and for free through the dinnerpartyshow.com and our free mobile app. And now, direct from the kitchen by way of the Get out of my office. It's your hosts, Christopher and Eric. Good evening, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Show for November 30th, 2014. And tonight we will not be talking about the fact that I have never walked into a party and had a nubile young Olympic gymnast put his number in my phone. But I'm not dead yet, and gymnastics is still a thing, so here's hoping. (laughs) Also, we will not be discussing the fact that so far, my most memorable romantic moments have taken place in my favorite books and movies. Except to point out that now you know why I'm so passionate about fiction. Also not being discussed on tonight's show, the fact that I can't even say I've always been a bridesmaid and never a bride. Usually I'm just the bitch who flew all the way from California to attend your gay (laughs) wedding and spend most of my time at the reception bitching about the crappy motel I had to stay in. Hmm. But I do manage to smile in all of the Facebook photos, so there's that. Social media is so important. important. Uh, We would also prefer that there be no mention of the fact that the closest I've come to true love is the truffled angel hair pasta in puff pastry I had at that outdoor cafe Mm, at Mount Rigatoni. It was good. (laughs) And there will be no discussion of the fact that I had a date where the man sitting across from me actually said, you don't recognize me from that story on CNN? As for everything else, it will be romance and more romance on tonight's episode of The Dinner Party Show, featuring my special report from the Romantic Times Conference in New Orleans, Louisiana. And my very special reaction. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. 
We'll be the judge of that. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice, and I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and I get to be a real journalist this week. And despite the snarky tone of his voice, which kind of is always the way he talks, um, oh really? <laughs> I'm the snarky one. We're actually doing a serious report this week. Well, I don't know that serious is the right word. We're doing a very romantic report this we week. We are, we but are. we're not kidding. This we're is actually kidding. a for real. Christopher gets to put on his. Brenda Star reporter hat. I most certainly do. If you've never listened to the dinner party show before, um, you don't. <laughs> why, why did you pick this episode? <laughs> well, I think but... possibly the subject of our report might draw some new listeners. I attended the Romantic Times convention in That's New Orleans. That's right. Yeah, yes. maybe we'll be um, welcome aboard, romantic listeners. We're as romantic as the next guy, although we're mostly pretty snarky. Uh, we're very snarky, and we practiced something here on the show that we, I think you came up with the word. No, you didn't. Somebody on Facebook who follows me did, and I'll have have to find out who it was. The term is snarketing. It is snark meets marketing. And that's what we're doing a little of tonight on the Dinner Party Show. I have uh, I have chewed everybody's ear off all year long about a series I'm part of called A Thousand and One Dark Nights. And it is a monthly novella series featuring some of the biggest names in erotic romance novels. And your entry is now available. It's now available. It's called The Flame. And why don't you share with people your first response when you heard the title was The Flame? Do you remember that snarky one? Do you remember? I don't. That, uh, that has eluded oh, me. Oh, you asked. I- I can't me if, it was, remember. if the flame was a gay superhero. The flame. Can't you see it? Yeah. Well, no, it's not. It is actually. Um, Here I come to a decorate. <laughs> I'm the flame. Why do I do this with you? Able to match colors in a single... (laughs) That's not what it's about. That's not what it's about. The flame is menage, which, as we will discuss in this report from the Romantic Times Convention, a subgenre of erotic romance. Menage could technically be an unlimited number of people, but when people refer to a menage novel or novella, they're typically talking about a woman and two men. And uh, the code... That's certainly what I'm talking about. Uh, you like the two men part. I, 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 you like to be the woman with the two men is what you like. Yeah. yeah, or the man with the two men would also be. So the code, I just want to say the code, if you're looking for these books on Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble or anywhere they're sold, is if it says MMF, it means the boys touch each other as well as the woman. If it says MFM... The woman's in the middle. It means the boys don't touch each other. That it's all. Oh, about the that's lady. very helpful information for the likes of me, and maybe for people who don't want the boys to touch each other. Well, I went to New Orleans and I put this report together, and I interviewed the other authors included in the series, all of whom were in attendance at the conference. Excellent. And then I put the report back together and brought it to you, and we're going to get your thoughts about it later. I mean, would you? I'll, I'll I'll start here. Do you consider yourself a fan of romance? I guess so. I mean, romance is getting to be a much broader topic, right? Exactly. And so, you know, my traditional answer would be absolutely yes, but it would have been. Jane Austen and that sort of more right. um, romantic kind of period of writing. But now romance is taking on a whole new, much more sort of really sexy is. and romantic. Uh, romantic. We invent That's new words every like week. Snarketing. Like, I don't even know what that means, but we should come up with a meaning for it. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, that that whole notion of, of, of it is getting to be a lot broader and more inclusive of a lot more things. And yeah, I guess um, it's sort of lovely to be able to call what I like romance. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had certainly uh, 
the more erotic kind of side of my literary appreciation. But yeah, yes. let's call it romance now. That works for me too. Absolutely. It's all romance, baby. Well, here it is, my special report from the Romantic Times Conference in New Orleans earlier this year. This is a real report. These are real authors. These are real people. <laughs> the names were not changed because no one is innocent. <laughs> and we hope it'll be real fun. It's estimated that 46% of all ebooks sold are romance novels. Earlier this year, one of the largest conventions of romance novelists and their fans met in my hometown of New Orleans. The Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention, officially referred to as RT by those in the know, is a massive week-long event full of workshops, book signings, and costume parties. And this year, I joined them for the first time. The reason? I had agreed to contribute to 1001 Dark Nights, an innovative series of monthly erotic romance novellas featuring some of the most successful authors in the genre. Despite the fact that I've been attending literary conferences for years, I'd only met one of the other contributors. That would be Heather Graham. But the rest of them were strangers, as foreign and exotic to me as this exciting new genre at which I was getting ready to try my hand for the first time. It's possible many of these women were strangers because most of them are indie success stories. Diligent, hard-working writers who found themselves shut out of mainstream publishing, only to be offered a new and unexpected platform to distribute their works when Amazon invented the Kindle. My plan upon arrival was to ask every contributor the same set of questions. But first, I needed to see if those questions met with the approval of the creators of A Thousand and One Dark Nights, author M.J. Rose and Liz Berry, the executive director of International Thriller Writers. So the first question is, if you had to spend the rest of your life on a desert island, which famous actor would you take with you? Does it have to be who they are now, or can it be who they were like 10 years ago? Do you think we should open it up to all time? I think it should be time travel, yes. Since we write paranormal and all that stuff, yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So I'll take Richard Gere from American Gigolo days. All right. MJ takes Richard Gere from American Gigolo. And I would take Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall. Brad Pitt from Legends of the Fall. That's a good one. Probably Matt Damon from Good Will Hunting. Oh, that's yeah. a good one. That's a yeah. good one. Yeah. That's a good right? one. So that was my first question. But what about the second? Would you rather spend the rest of your life married to a vampire or a billionaire CEO? Well, that's where things kind of went off the rails. You like vampires. I like I immortality. I didn't know this about you. like immortality. Yeah, okay. and, and they're hot, Chris. I mean, yeah. with the muscles and the... Mm. But not not all vampires have muscles. Liz. Do you know what? In my brain, they in can have brain. whatever that I, I want. I think in your to brain, have. we all have muscles. Yeah, That's you why do. I hang around you so <laughs> much because my muscles get it's bigger true. when when you and I are, oh, are my. close. Oh, Chris. <laughs> oh no! You see what this conference does to people? It's crazy here. I walked into the lobby. The estrogen just wafted over me. Yeah, all the elevators are full of posters of Navy SEALs. Everyone's, yeah, everyone has worked into a state. There's a lot but of drawings of naked men around this there's place. There's a lot of angst they're, from these women, and they're going to take it out on you, I'm afraid. They don't, they don't seem very angsty, but uh, they seem like they're having a pretty good time. That's true. Yeah. After that slip of the tongue, we never made it to the third question. 
but my muscles did feel a little bigger. Later, I managed to get some time alone with my friend MJ Rose, who explained how a thousand and one dark nights sprang from a phone call she had with her friend and international thriller writer's colleague Liz Berry, a self-described uber fangirl of erotic romance. I was in Florida, and I was walking in the morning, and I was trying to figure out um, how I could build a big newsletter list. And I um, called Liz and I said, I have this really weird idea. Like, what if we came up with an idea and we had all these different authors write a different short story and we did all this marketing behind it and we made it like a branded thing, but every author got to write their own thing. And we walked, I walked for an hour and a half that morning and we brainstormed on the phone about what this could be and how we would build it. And we got all, well, she was helping me. She thought I was doing it. And we get finished with the conversation. I said, well, you like this idea? And she said, yeah, I think this is great. You should do it. I said, well, I'll do it if you be my partner. She's like, oh, really, really, really? You want me to be? I said, I can't do it without you. You know all the authors. It was very exciting. Rose is considered by many to be the first indie author. In a time when self-publishing was considered the kiss of death for any writer, she managed to go from emailing readers word files of her first novel to a contract with a major New York publisher. Today she's published by Simon & Schuster and she's the co-president of International Thriller Writers. But it's the 15 years she spent working in advertising that led her to start her own company, Author Buzz, the first marketing firm designed solely for writers. I'm from advertising and I'm really, my head is all about marketing. And one of the things that really has frustrated me is there's all this unused potential about authors connecting with each other and helping each other get the word out about books that are terrific. What I wanted to do and what Liz wanted to do was we wanted to do marketing that pays you the author, that helps you grow your brand, and we wanted to be a completely new kind of company that is completely transparent with figures and money and splits everything with you and in some cases gives you more than it gives us. Like with audio and film rights, you get 70% and we only keep 30 because we really have a new vision of how things can work. It's a very collective group group effort where everybody really has to help each other or it doesn't work. And so we only chose authors that we knew personally and that we liked and that we were friends with because we didn't want anybody who wasn't going to be really willing to do what was required of them. It's a lot of work for each author. They have to social media 12 times a year everybody else's books. And they have to, most of them are reading all the 12 books so they can actually say intelligent things about them. But the benefit is every single book in the group has the links to every other author's books. And we're seeing that each month more and more books are selling exponentially as more and more copies get out there. So it's really been amazingly exciting. It's probably the most exciting experience I've had since 1999 in publishing, of actually seeing something that we thought had potential and really seeing that it actually works. But why does it work so well? Is it simply because romance fans are notoriously voracious readers? Or is it because the buy buttons for all the other novellas in the series are literally right there in front of you as soon as you finish the book? This dramatic shortening of the distance between an ad and a point of sale simply isn't possible in a physical book. Think of it as a streamlined 21st century version of the old order forms you'd sometimes find in the final pages of a mass market paperback. And if anyone's wondering, yes, physical versions of each title in the series are available for sale. 
But what is it about the 1001 Dark Knights business model that's good for authors, especially in a marketplace where so many have found success going it on their own? The whole concept has a very detailed back end to it about how we need a certain number of months to sell a certain number of copies to pay our bills because we're fronting everything and we're not asking the authors to front it and we're not, um, we're not keeping the author's money until we're paid. We're, the authors get paid from the first copy that sells. So after a certain number of months we're paid but then we're, we're keeping the book selling and having this big backlist so that everybody can keep selling. And the idea is, this is complicated to explain, but the idea is that every author's own books are going to, their brand is going to be increased and their sales are going to be increased by at least 10%. And authors are telling us whose books have come out that indeed they are selling more of their other new books than they expected to based on all this buzzing that the group of 12 authors is doing about them and all the links in the backs of the 1001 Dark Knight books. And at the end of the year, we get a story from you, right? We get a story from MJ Rowe. Well, this, the way the stories are written is I wrote the introduction, the idea about this young woman who's a time traveler who um, gets stuck during the Arabian Nights and every night she has to tell the king another story to keep herself alive and then each author can tell whatever story they want. It's so open-ended. She's going to tell him a story every night that's totally different. So you can tell your story and Heather Graham can tell her story and the stories can be wildly different but they're still the same stories that our characters keeping herself alive. So in December, uh, Lexi Blake and um, Shayla Black and I are writing a story together about that woman and how she got stuck. When Liz and MJ first asked me to take part in the series, it was so I could be the token horror writer in the bunch. But the more they explained the changes taking place in the romance genre, the more I became fascinated by all of the different possibilities, if you will. One of those new popular configurations is referred to as menage. It involves one woman with two men. And when series contributor Lorelai James, known for her contemporary erotic westerns, explained her own menage novel to me, it became clear that sometimes those men touch each other too. Trevor and Edgar together were really fun to write. Um, it was completely a step outside of what I normally write. And I think a lot of times when you when you write things like that, male, male, menage, you sort of get pigeonholed. So it was really nice for me to get to write something different and then not have to write that all yeah. the time. Was there anything negative? Did you get people saying, I don't want to, this isn't my thing. I don't want to write, I want it more traditional. Actually, after Long Hard Ride and I left them sort of star-crossed lovers, I got mm -hmm. a lot of requests for me to write their story. And then wow. when I when I married, you know, Trevor to Chassie in book four, right. I got a lot of angry emails that said, <laughs> oh, my God, how could you do that to Edgar? They were so perfect together. And I said, stay tuned. You know, uh -huh. I, wanted, I wanted them to know that their story wasn't done. Right. Initially, I had wanted to just leave them star-crossed lovers because I think that happens right. a lot in real life. Yeah. And, but their story was a little compelling to write, so I had to finish right. it. Well, you know, it's interesting because I sort of got pulled into this whole project by Liz Barry, and she explained to me that menage was a thing that was happening in romance. I had no idea. I knew that there were a lot of women writing right. romance with two men as the heroes, but I didn't know that the configurations were expanding, if you will. I mean, is that a post ebook thing, or was that happening before? Was Harlequin publishing MMF? No, not at, not at all, because yeah. it's 
kind of ironic that I'm with NAL, which mm -hmm. is Penguin Putnam right now for the Black Tap Cowboys, but they originally turned down Long Hard Ride because of the male mail. Wow. And they said, if you change the male mail, we will publish it. And I said, I'm not changing it because it's such a part of the story. Right. And then a couple of years later, we pitched an entirely different series to them. So. Wow. So I think ebooks are have always been way ahead of the curve. I know that there's a there's a lot more out there now. If I pitched a male mail series to NAL, they would have no problem with it. As long as there was a third player that was a woman right. and they were focused on it, on more on the woman than just the mm -hmm. two guys. But, yeah. you know, anything goes now, which wasn't the case even seven years ago. You know, and I honestly think that's the reason why I sell so well in digital is because somebody doesn't have to have the book cover road hard put up wet when they're on the airport or when they're, you know, on the train or whatever, you know, no one knows what they're reading. And so I do think that that's a huge benefit to digital books. Anything goes. That seems to be the motto with romance these days, particularly when it comes to sex. Lately, it seems as if the epic success of Fifty Shades of Grey has all but eclipsed the old Nora Roberts days of sisters finding love at elaborate weddings. Why has BDSM moved so quickly to the forefront of the digital romance revolution? Lexi Blake, author of the hit series Masters and Mercenaries, had this to say on the topic. I call what I write sugar kink. Sugar cake. Sugar kink. Sugar kink. Oh. Yes. It's not hardcore kink, but it's got elements of it, but it's still very, very romantic. It, it fits in a romance novel, but... The, the sex is very important to the book. With BDSM, there are as many ways to practice as there are people who practice it. Right. The, what I enjoy about writing in that world is they take sex seriously. Okay. You, you have to talk about it. You have to you have to take your own sexuality seriously. There's communication involved. Yes. And, right. And I don't think, especially women, we don't necessarily do that. Interesting. For, for much of our lives. We, we suppress it. We say it's not important. We... And yet our partners, that, that's kind of the language of, of a man's love. Huh. Sex is, is the way they, they, they show they love you. Right. So this makes us speak their language, ah. but it also makes them speak ours because they ha we have to talk about it. Right, right. So that's, that's genuinely what I, I love and adore about that world. All right. So enough with the big philosophical questions. It was time for me to get back to my own erotic version of the Proust questionnaire. The first question was simple enough. Would you rather spend the rest of your life married to a vampire or a billionaire CEO? But as I learned with my old friend Heather Graham, the mere mention of vampires can open up a whole coffin of worms. Get it? So you write about vampires. What are those? You don't? Really? I don't know. I hear a lot about them. I hear they're very popular, particularly in New Orleans, but I have no idea why. There would be a big shock. I, I guess you somehow you missed this because, you know, we miss the things right in front of us, but there's this incredible author named Anne Rice, and I think she really introduced them to this. I mean, well, or she found them, one or the other. She introduced them to the city, or she found them here and brought them to the rest of us. You are constantly at conferences. Is that correct? I'm there a lot. You're literally, you're at every conference I've ever attended, and you have more frequent flyer miles than anyone I know, but you also have an amazing output. 
amazing. Like, how many books a year do you write? I've never really, I've, I've been around a long time. I have about 200 books. I like to, but I just, I, be, I love, I read everything, and I belong to horror writers. Um, I belong to thriller writers. I belong to romance writers. I belong to sisters in crime. I am mystery writers. And they all have conferences, and they all have incredible, wonderful people that I get to see when I go. So that's what's neat about it. But there were some authors I spoke with who decided to play by the rules of my little questionnaire. Authors like Julie Kenner. Just a few months after the conference, her novel Claim Me won the prestigious Rita Award for erotic romance. But during our interview, she was humble, self-effacing, and to the point. If you had to spend the rest of your life married to one of the following, who would you pick, a billionaire CEO or a vampire? Billionaire CEO. Why is that? Because I have shopping issues. <laughs> and vampires just can't really do anything about shopping. You no, know, you know, and you know, and I kind of like the daylight. I'm, I'm a fan of the sun, you know, okay. like like the beach, like the beach, yeah. I mean, you, could, you wouldn't have to be a vampire. You could just be married to him, and you would have your own space during the day. Well, that's true, but you know, like that companionability thing, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. Drinks by the pool with the guy. But then my luck ran out. On the subject of vampires, Cherise Sinclair, self-described introvert and author of the series Master of the Shadowlands, decided to turn the tables on me, the interviewer. Have you ever really thought about it? Now, a vampire's heart does not beat. Right. Right? Right. Where does a guy get an erection from, right. if his heart is not beating and the blood is not flowing, then either he has a permanent erection or he has nothing at all because nothing would come up and down. Right. So just curious, Chris, answer me that. What? I'm supposed to be asking the questions here. Here's the best I could do. I think, okay, well, obviously, I know what explanation my mother came up with, right? that would probably explain it, but I think it's up to each author to decide how a vampire is going to get an erection. (laughs) Right? Because in her world, and we'll ask Laura Adrian and I'll ask Tina Folsom when I have her on mic, and in my mother's world, there's a single spirit that lives in each of them that animates them. That's their life force. So that's where the erection would come from. But in the absence of that, you're right. I have no idea how a vampire would get an erection. Pretty lame. I know. So I put Sharice's question to series contributor Tina Folsom. Her Scanguards series features vampires who devote their lives to protecting humans. They're literally vampire bodyguards. They have to hire certain humans to work during the day, obviously. But how do they perform in other areas? Okay, so one of our other contributors, Cherise Sinclair, brought up this point, And maybe because you all have been sitting together for most of the evening, she's already addressed it with you. She's under the impressions that vampires don't have a heart, and they don't have a heart beat. So how do they become stimulated enough for sex? Well, see, this is where my vampires are different. They all have a heartbeat. Because you need a heartbeat to pump the blood through your veins. So there is no way that certain sparkling vampires could actually father children if uh, they can't, don't have any fluids in their body. Sorry. So, so for me, a vampire has a heartbeat. Yeah. Case closed. In Tina Folsom's case, at least. But what about series contributor Laura Adrian? Romantic Times Magazine has named her Midnight Breed novels one of the best vampire series on the market. But how do her vampires measure up when the lights go down? 
I actually thought about that because I'm kind of logical. And right. I was thinking that is the problem with the undead, you know. Right. So mine are kind of an alien. It's an oh. alien-human hybrid. Oh, so, yeah, fantastic. so they're like very hot-blooded, very sexy, and very capable. As any writer knows, there's nothing like a new cosmology to help you deal with an old problem. But when I asked her one of the other questions on my questionnaire, Laura ended up raising the bar for everyone who followed. Take a listen. If you had to spend the rest of your life on a desert island, which famous actor would you take with you? And you can choose from throughout history. Oh my God, that's hard. Um, I would have said Brad Pitt before the goatee and Angelina Jolie. Mm -hmm. And I would have said Clooney. But no, I, there's really nobody. That's there's really, really weird. There's nobody? really nobody. Uh -uh. Would you want to go to a desert island alone or with your no. favorite book? Oh, or God. Yeah. Can I take my husband? That's a really Aww, lame answer. That's but a you know, great answer. <laughs> I've been with him 28 years since I was 20. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, he's it for me. So That's fantastic. <laughs> of course you can take your husband. Thank you. Husbands are always welcome. But would they always be welcome with Larissa Ione, author of the Demonica series? Even better... Her husband was standing right next to her when I asked. Okay, and I'm just going to warn you about the first question is, if you had to go to a desert island for the rest of your life, what famous actor would you take with you? Laura Adrian said her own husband. So I just, and your husband is here. So if you had to go to a desert island for the rest of your life, Larissa, who would you take with you? Liam Neeson. <laughs> who is your husband, right? Right. Oh, yeah, he's my dream husband. Do you have a good Liam Neeson impression? No, I don't, actually. I was hoping she'd say Sean Connery, because I have one of those. <laughs> I will go to a desert island for the rest of my life with my husband if he acts like Sean Connery the whole time we're there. Oh, yeah, that'll work. So back to more serious matters. If that's possible, at a conference in New Orleans where everyone's talking about sex. Why romance? That was the final question I put to the 1001 Dark Knights contributors. Larissa Ione had this to say. Because everybody can relate to it. Everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. Every human wants a companion. And um, you find romance in every single genre. It doesn't matter if you're watching a thriller. There always, there's this romantic subplot. So um, it's just, that's what we humans are meant to do. And Rita Award winner Julie Kenner. Why romance? Because it's all about the happily ever after. That's it. That's it. That's it. And the sex. No one typifies success as an indie romance author quite like series contributor Liliana Hart. Her books were rejected by traditional publishers for years because they couldn't decide whether to shelve them in mystery or romance. So why not simply switch genres to make a sale? Why not tone down the sex? I, I write romance because, you know, the other genres, they don't like the sexy times like romance does. <laughs> and apparently I have to write about that. Apparently you do. And let me tell you something. I read your installment in A Thousand and One Dark Nights at the gym on the elliptical, and that was a mistake. That is a mistake. I needed to be home alone reading that in the privacy of my own bedroom. All I'm going to say is jail cell, all right? Right. That's yeah. the best scene ever. And I get emails like I had to stop and take a walk around the block. <laughs> I was pretty proud of myself for that jail cell scene. Lisa Renee Jones, author of the Inside Out series, took a more serious approach to the question of why she writes romance. 
Because romance is at the core of who we are as human beings. And uh, we all, I don't care what the story is, ultimately there is always a romance there. And it cracks me up how so many uh, people who read other genres think the romance isn't a part of what they read when it, the reality is in every single story, movie, etc., there is a romance at the core because that's who we are as human beings. We have to have that connection. Shayla Black is the author of over 40 romance novels. One of her Wicked Lovers novellas launched A Thousand and One Dark Nights this past January. Her answer as to why she writes romance also revealed why she has stayed true to a genre that's seen widespread change since she first started working in it years ago. I was a little kid and um, my mother had a babysitter to watch me after school and she started reading um, Kathleen Woodowitz's Shanna when I was a little kid and I... You know, I wanted to read it because her nose was just shoved in that book. And she was like, uh, no, you, you can't read that. So I got to be in college, and I was browsing a bookstore one day looking for a used textbook, but they had a fiction section, so I walked past it, and I happened to notice the book was sitting there on the shelf. So I picked it up, and kind of in between classes, I started reading it one day, and I just I fell in love with the genre, and I never stopped. Romance might be timeless, but the genre itself seems to move and change um, with, with every year that goes by. It, it just seems to somehow keep up and stay modern. Instead of, you know, being super interested in some sort of, you know, Viking hero or medieval lord or whatever. So, yeah, now we're into rock stars and billionaires. And um, I, I, I think there's even a series out there about mafia assassins and, you know, take tech. But it's, I, I think we're just, as, as TV has gotten grittier and, and we talk more openly about everything, I think the series, the genre itself has changed. Good sex, happily ever afters, constant companionship. How can you dismiss a genre that provides for these primal needs? Ask the mainstream media. They seem to do it almost every other day. Romance novels are treated with more disdain than most other popular genres of fiction even though mysteries and thrillers can be pretty damn predictable and often boil down to a moral that goes something along the lines of, gosh, we really should have listened to that old straight white guy. Still, is there a term for the mystery that's quite as belittling as bodice ripper or, God forbid, mommy porn? By the way, woe betide the interloper who makes the mistake of using either of those terms at a conference like RT. You might call me crazy for this, but I'm going to suggest that maybe the less courageous, or at least the predictable choice, is choosing to wallow endlessly in the frustrations and disappointments of our everyday lives. I mean, where would Facebook be without it? And maybe the courageous choice, or at least the audacious choice, is putting pen to paper and writing about the world as we would like it to be. Anyone who loves genre fiction believes, at some level, that fantasy is not an idle pursuit, but when used wisely, a tool for emotional survival. It's no small thing when a woman, or a gay man for that matter, who's been sent countless, insidious, shaming messages throughout her life telling her to be quiet about her sexuality, decides to write about the sex she would like to have and the love she would like to come with it. Call me crazy, but I think that's brave. I'm Christopher Rice, and you're listening to The Dinner Party Show. Dinner Party Show.
tired of dining alone? Enjoy the dinner party show with friends. Like us on Facebook and become one of our party people. Then, during our live shows on Sundays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, you can join the conversation and post questions for Christopher, Eric, and their guests. During the week, drop in for tasty side dishes, show updates, and fun with the other party people. The Dinner Party Show. You are the life of our party. I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And I'm Christopher Rice. And why are you looking at me like that, Eric? Well, I just finished reading The Flame, your first erotic romance. And I must say, you know a lot more about a woman's body than I thought. Thank you, I guess. I don't actually think you're the best judge of that. But whatever, I'll take the compliment. Truth be told, there are all sorts of bodies on display in The Flame, whereas Christopher's body is usually on display on his Facebook All right, page. come on now. The Flame is now on sale through the dinnerpartyshow.com and at Amazon. It's the passionate tale of a magical scented candle that helps the person who lights it follow their heart's desires. So that's what we're calling it now. Just finish before you ruin the right. promo. Ruin a promo? How could I possibly do that? You mean by singing this song again like I did the last time? Erotic, erotic. I'm Put leaving. Your hands all over my body. The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Good taste, gone bad. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Show. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Well, there you have it. That's my real journalism. That's my report from RT. You were very serious, Christopher Rice. That was very, uh, yeah, (laughs) such a departure from us. We're usually like kidding about everything. I know. Yeah, that was really a fun report. I really enjoyed hearing from them, but also some really interesting ideas. Like, I I think the thing that, that, that catches me right up front is the the bellwether that romances become for the sort of digital publishing revolution like mm-hmm. i i love the idea in general of the whole revolution this as we're experiencing it of content becoming king is what i always say content is being restored to as opposed to the gatekeepers being king which has really made publishing a very limited sort of market now there is this sort of much broader availability for a whole wide range of a lot of topics and mm-hmm. romance because of our sort of universal appeal um, of the particular topic is exploding as more people are able to bring their thoughts and their fantasies and their ideas to a forum that is much more unlimited. Right. It's only limited by your imagination or by the audience's interest in whatever the topic is. So right. so the thing that struck me first, you know, and you're talking with uh, with the group was the way in which the explosion has been about um, romance, but also been about people's departure from obscurity into mm-hmm. The full light of day because this whole new revolution, this technological revolution has taken place. Right, right. It's, a, it's direct delivery in, in a way. You know, we talked, I talked about that in the report, the idea that you used to open up the paperback novels, not always romance novels, but any sort of popular paperback. And there was an order form in the back. If you like this book, check this box and you would tear that sheet out and put it in an envelope and mail it to the publisher. Well, they never did an excellent job of that, which is why I think we saw Amazon rise up and kind of take over the industry the way it did. Um, but this is the new version of that. And these women are one piece of the revolution. Something that I didn't get to, which was very present at the conference, was this new community of women 
readers and writers who write exclusively gay romances. They call them MM romances, two men, you know. And that existed entirely online prior to Kindle, um, but with no monetization around it at all. They weren't selling their works. The old joke was that there was always, everybody knew there was a group of women out there who really loved gay stories about Kirk and Spock, right? <laughs> you know, the slash fiction, right? right. You talked about it. You're, one of your, you're a big Supernatural, supernatural fan. Yeah. Absolutely. They even did a send-up of it on their own show. They're right. so aware of that, that popular idea. And I think... Uh, E.L. James' book, The Fifty Shades yes. of Grey, really originated from a sort of slash fiction kind of world of of, of bringing the sort of romance to or heightening the romance to a more sexual level in the Twilight series. Well, right? it's a, it calls the question how much of the gatekeepers or to what extent do the gatekeepers use language about what the public wants? I'm putting in air quotes, which you can't see because we're on the radio. Uh, when really it's just what they don't want to publish, you know? Like if somebody, we heard Lorelai James talking about how difficult it would have been to sell a menage novel in which the men were also sexual with each other to a mainstream publisher just a few short years before this revolution happened. But now we know just a few years later, there actually was a very big audience for that. So were the publishers who were dismissing it lying or were they just unaware? You know, and, and it doesn't necessarily need to be a fault finding and blame thing. But it is that magical aspect of all this that it exposes new audiences for new stuff. I mean, as you're saying, that's what happens when content becomes king. And honestly, I think it's really just a change in business model. Right. You know, like if if my job as, as a traditional publisher, what I want is to publish the fewest number of books that sell the most number of copies because right. my expense is in – not only editing, but also printing and delivering books. So if I can just print one book 500,000 times and that sells out everywhere I send it, that makes me a lot more money than printing 75 different books that sell, I don't know what, 500,000 divided by 75, but smaller numbers. Mm -hmm. So obviously, just from a purely business standpoint, that's a more efficient model. But with digital, it doesn't make any difference. Right, right. Yeah. Right, the thing I've always said about the old, the old style is really more the case now was that there were really only, what, five books at the bookstore. It looked like there were hundreds of thousands of them, but it was really just a Simon & Schuster book and a HarperCollins book and a, a Random House book. And, you know, and they had a lot of different titles, but really all they wanted you to buy was one of their titles. And so this way we really can have a much greater proliferation at much less expense because it's really only a matter of posting the book. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just, I think it's more, it's not a blame thing. It's just a shift in business model. Like mm -hmm. my objectives are one thing in traditional publishing. And as we move into a more digital kind of realm, my objectives change. I want a lot of choices for you mm -hmm. um, to be able to make. As you all talked about the, you know, buying the whole library. You talked about that some in the interview. Yeah, we did. And we also talked about, and I don't know if we said it quite this explicitly, being free of the bookshelf. You know, that was the Liliana Hart experience that she talked about. We touched on it briefly, but she's online giving various video interviews for, right. for uh, Create Space, which is the self-publishing physical book outlet that Amazon owns. And she did a video for them where she said they wouldn't buy my books because they couldn't decide uh, – they wouldn't publish my books, I should say, because they couldn't decide which section they were going to go in in the store because I would write these mysteries and then there would be all the super hot sex 
that, as she said just now, she was a big fan of and didn't want to cut. So the dissonance isn't quite the word for it, but the indecisiveness of that publisher led to her not ever being put before an audience anywhere until the advent of eBooks and she could do it herself. Because the business model changed, right? It became, you could be in five different places in the same bookstore because the bookstore is is virtual, not real. It didn't physically have to be in five different places. And even if you're buying real copies, even if they're mailing you the regular, you know, traditional book, it still changes the model. Right. And then the other side of it, obviously, is romance itself. Right. You know, the appeal of romance itself. Obviously, as a writer, I'm taken with the what romance has represented as a bellwether in the digital revolution. Yeah. But romance itself, the changing nature of the way in which people are reacting to, responding to romance and the 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 greater options, the greater variety, yeah. the much more it's a much richer sort of it it's 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 left the missionary position, if yes, you will. It's yeah. moved into a lot more <laughs> right. There's a lot more different there positions is. available. And it's whatever floats your boat that day. The thing that I have heard Big fans and practitioners of the genre say to me again and again, particularly in regards to the the MM segment of the market, which is growing. It's not quite as big as everything else, but it's certainly growing very quickly, is uh, love is love. You will hear them say it over and over again. Love is love. Now, there are some authors of gay romance who don't really take to that distinction. They're saying, no, I write gay romances. It's a special thing. It doesn't belong necessarily just in the soup with everything else. It's a rarefied audience. Not everybody buys in. I want the, I don't want them called MM. That's too neutral. These are gay romances. And then, but the audience seems to be of a love is love variety. And, and a reporter, a newspaper reporter took me aside and she was a big fan of the gay stuff and said, I have to explain to my son. I say to him, have you ever watched a video with two women? And he'll go, yeah. He said, this is my version of that, son. I get to read a romantic story with two men, and I get the same thing out of it that you get from watching that that video with two women being, quote-unquote, romantic with each other. So it's a fascinating time. You know, it's a fascinating time because people are trying so many different things. But I'm interested. I want to know what Eric Shaw Quinn thinks of the double standard question that I raised at the end of that report. Do you feel like even when they are at their most predictable and stale, male-dominated genres like mystery and thriller are considered more legitimate. Than romance. Yeah. Again, I think that that, I think that, that may be reacting to the wrong yardstick. Mm-hmm. Like, the thing I was getting at in talking about the change in the nature of publishing from one business model to another really is about changing the yardstick. Mm-hmm. Right, Amazon is much less interested in how one appears in the first three weeks of their book on the New York Times bestseller list than they are at looking at how you sell over a period of the time. The long tail, It's a yeah. much more retail-driven, mm-hmm. right? One is a very industrial, um, arts industry-driven movie, kind of, you know, like how does the movie do the first weekend, right. as opposed to a more retail kind of how— like if I'm selling pineapple, mm-hmm. right? People dismiss it as being, well, I'd sell refrigerators on Amazon, but really wouldn't it be better for books if they sold like refrigerators? Because people mm-hmm. don't just stop needing refrigerators after the first three weeks. They right. continue to buy them all year long and for years to come. Like I think that sort of look at the marketplace. So if we're assessing things, if we're giving legitimacy Mm-hmm. As as you described it in your question, if we're assessing that based on sales, right? Yeah. We may be we may be misrepresenting the 
the use of the term, mm-hmm. right? If things are legitimate because they are the bigger sellers, they were chosen because they were the bigger sellers, not because they were better or worse than the other topic. I would reverse the equation. I would say when we talk about legitimacy, and it's it's definitely a complicated label to apply because it's often based in nothing really factual. Um, We're talking about the literary opinions of several well-placed critics throughout the country at various newspapers and magazines and a sort of reflexive dismissiveness that they hold towards romance in general. Like, would we ever see a romance review section in a major newspaper or a romance novel outside of a of a lark, like Fifty Shades of Grey, a huge seller, reviewed in any kind of serious or meaningful way, the way that mysteries and thrillers, not often, but sometimes do get reviewed seriously in papers like the New York Times. Yeah, no, I think that there even those get dismissed. There is the yeah, there's true. a world yeah. of literariness that I think will also have a much greater renaissance in the digital revolution mm-hmm. because they once again won't be you can if you want to write an entire novel in lowercase letters with no punctuation or spaces, you can. I don't know that there'll be a huge market for it, but you won't have to deal with some sniffy editor's reaction to it. You can just publish it. Right. And if somebody wants to buy it or it becomes the hottest new thing, well, then great. And if it doesn't, well, it's your literary experience. Literary experimentation is a much easier thing in this context mm-hmm. because it's about content and it's not about a business model mm-hmm. that's all about the quantity of sales. Right. Right. It's more about the quantity of material that's available out there, yeah. which I think is a much more appealing model for writers. Right. I hope that it will be a, an appealing writer for publishing as well, but they're going to have to... Like, I was thinking, I was wondering the other day, I wish, I know it's not going to be possible, but I wish that it was, that we could capture the reaction in the marketplace to people who were lamenting the passage of scrolls in mm-hmm. favor of printed bound books, mm-hmm. right? I'm sure there were people that, well, what... What, what are we going to do without the monks to mm-hmm. assess which classic should be, mm-hmm. you know, interpreted? Mm-hmm. You know, what are we going to do without a Christian slant being put on the works of Aristotle? Mm-hmm. You know, what, I, I like the handwriting of this particular person who's inscribing these scrolls. Why, what's going to happen now that all of the letters are going to look just alike from book to book? Right. I'm sure there were genuine complaints, but it was really just a technological shift. Mm-hmm. And we're there again. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I don't know that like it's a it's a combination of different technological leaps forward, but it, it has combined itself into a completely new technological form that is allowing us to experience books in a whole new way. I guess I've sort of gotten off the topic. So, which I want to ask you what you would have said in response to the little erotic Proust questionnaire I gave to the ladies in New Orleans, right? I asked them, who would you rather be married to, a billionaire CEO (laughs) or a vampire? Well, you know, I thought about that when you were were asking the ladies when I was listening to the report. And I, I have to say that... One of the things that is appealing to me about the vampire um, genre is that over time, right, you can buy all of the property on Park Avenue, even though it's just a road to a cow farm or a dairy farm, Mm -hmm. um, and then 
500 years later, be a billionaire because you own all of the property. So I don't know that those are mutually exclusive ideas. And I would pick vampire because it also includes the possibility of immortality. Mm-hmm. I, if, in my myth, it would make me immortal, but also maybe thinner and younger. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be this for all time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, like yeah. whatever. But like my I, the appeal of the intruders for me was the the BBC America the BBC show that show, I've been yeah. so fond of is has been the discussion of that sort of mortality. Mm-hmm. The fact that we die is maybe the most interesting thing about life because we don't know anything about it, and so speculation in and around that topic. Um, Always captures my attention. Being a billionaire is great. Absolutely. I I would definitely want the billionaire thing. But if you could have the billionaire and the mortality, immortality thing, which the I think the vampirism actually, if the vampire has, you know, been around for a while, Mm -hmm. offers both. Okay. Okay. I get it. I get it. So the other question was, if you had to spend the rest of your life on a desert island with a famous actor from from throughout time, since you seem to be on a time travel immortality kick. Who would you pick? That was a more fraught question for me. Well, I don't think you'd be a big fan of being on a desert island for the rest of your life. Uh, you know, like being outdoors or whatever. But like, <laughs> like, I, I, yeah, I don't even like going in the ocean. Um, but the thing that I thought of was like, it, like obviously, you know, the obvious answer is Henry Cavill. Like, yes, boom, done. Or maybe because the thing that that being on a desert island with somebody throughout all time actually presents you with is somebody that would be interesting to be on an island with yes. throughout all times. Like my first choice, though not sexually, would be you because Aww, I get along better with you, you than anybody else. Like, right. I would rather like just go find some, have some private time by the <laughs> waterfall um, to take care of that side of things. And if I was specifically going to get, if it was just about the sex, then maybe I'd be better off to pick a professional, you know, Connor McGuire, as opposed to, <laughs> you know, somebody who is really that, if that's yeah. what we're going for, I mean, maybe him Henry Cavill is both the most fascinating man in the world and really knows what he's doing in the bedroom. There but I don't be, know either of those You would have nothing else him. to do on the island but learn how to do it well. You'd turn him into a professional by the time you're, you know, year 15. And it would be damn fun trying, right? Yeah, like, totally. in where There would be no advantage in inhibitions or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, if he's not interested in men at all, which... I don't know if he is. Well, listen, like, there's a lot of be... gay romance novels that go that way, too. One of them has to be because there are no other options. Right. But the no other options thing is... Doesn't maybe, exactly warm your heart, does maybe it? Maybe less romantic. Yeah. And I'm, uh, I'm, I am maybe more romantic in that area. So, again, once again, maybe you're better off with a professional as opposed to, um, you know, a known quantity. It's why I would pick you, a known quantity. You're much more interesting to me than any of the movie mm-hmm. stars that I know of because I know you. Right. Like, if I was actually palling around with Henry Cavill, maybe I would talk with you less. I don't know. You'd maybe be doing would be, a radio show with Henry Cavill. My ass would be, be out in the yard picking money. More interesting. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I don't know. So I, I thought that was an interesting question because there's so much, because it's about time. It's it about is. How, somebody to spend that length of time with. I know. But then I started thinking, well, maybe they're, you know, fascinating, brilliant actors. Lawrence Olivier or Charles Lawton, who I'm maybe not sexually compelled by, but who seem really talented, brilliant people who might be more mm-hmm. Interesting over time, or maybe it would even be, you know, Emma Thompson seems like she would be a great deal of fun and kind of brilliant. Yeah. Though I've absolutely no interest in even seeing her unclothed, let alone sleeping with her, because, you know, I'm gay. Right. Anyway, so 
that was sort of my much bigger answer. The other thing that I thought of when I was listening to your report is that I think that a part of the the big appeal of um, romance and the erotic romance and all of this is that it's about stuff that you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like having experiences that you don't actually want to have. Mm-hmm. Like in real life, it's pair bonding with somebody dependable and that you love and that you could – but, you know, having your bodice ripped and thrown down on the table and right. somebody, some pirate has his way with you, well, that isn't actually something you'd want to have happen to you, is ultimately a very appealing kind of fantasy and fun to participate with in this kind of measured and distanced sort of way. I agree. And some of that is because you know who a pirate would actually be. And the fun of a romance novel is that you turn the pirate into the man of your dream. Right. You know, like like a lot, uh, as we as we talked about in the report, Lexi Blake in particular talked about BDSM is very big. Fifty Shades of Grey right. is about BDSM. And it may be fun to fantasize about that it when, may you, be fun to when fantasize you would punch about somebody it. out for hitting you with a belt. And a lot of these women write about BDSM clubs, which actually exist. And these authors will be the first to tell you, I have visited these clubs. And the people at these clubs versus the people I write as being at these clubs, very different people. Because these are novels. This is fiction. This is fantasy that right. we're working with. You know, so I think that's, um, I think it's possible to talk about that openly without dismissing the whole genre because again mysteries and thrillers offer far more closure at the end than any of us probably ever get out of real life and that's the other thing that i think is appealing about the whole romance thing is that you have a sense of the entire arc right it gives you that sort of like the joy of jane austen and i have to say i think it's more the movies than the actual books right because the books are a little dated and kind of juvenile mm-hmm. uh, for me. But uh, the the closure of it, the completeness of the story, right? right? They, they do wind up with the person. And there's some joy in being told that, even if it's unlikely. Mm-hmm. It's You want to know that. You want yes. to know how things work out. You want right. to have that ability to see the whole story as opposed to just part of it. And I will say this, and then I think we're going we're gonna to wrap up this super serious jur- investigative very serious. journalist. Very serious. Very romantic. Episode of the Dinner Party Show. I think... It, the the cliche is that it's easy to write a happy ending. That's not actually true. It's easy to write a bad happy ending. Um, writing a good happy ending is actually very challenging. I think it's easy to write a down ending. I think it's easy to write one where things don't work out because then you don't have to convincingly build the past to where they actually do. Schmaltz is where you don't manage to successfully construct scaffolding for your happy ending story. You know, it just happens. It's just suddenly everything works out and it feels unmotivated. And the really the really good romance novelists dig in and do a great job of building that satisfying conclusion. Yeah. Know? Yeah, no, I think because it if if you create a universe I can believe in, then what happens in that universe becomes much more substantive, more, much more real for me. Absolutely. So do you think you accomplished that with The Flame? God, I hope so. I, you know, <laughs> the, the Flame is – I think the job of any genre writer, romance, mystery, thriller, is to take a, a premise that on the face of it sounds absolutely absurd and uh-huh. make it believable. And the premise of The Flame is basically that a straight married couple together – fall in love with their gay best friend who has in turn fallen in love with them. So it is technically a menage MMF novel, right? but it is, um, 
I tried to make it as convincing as I possibly could. Again, as we said. And build that happy ending. Right. You know, that was the work of it. It's why it was not a toss-off, if you'll forgive the term. <laughs> you know, because you, I had to really dig in there. And there were lessons I had. The um, My beta readers, as they're called, were all women. And I, I really wanted, since the majority audience for romance is obviously women, and the main character was a woman, right. I said to them, tell me how to do this. And they pointed out the, the first thing that men do when they write erotic romance is that they have sex and then they fade to black. And they were like, no, 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 I don't think so. They have to talk. They have to communicate. It's about that communication that Lexi Blake right. talked like about. Right, even with, even with the appeal of BDSM, that it, yeah. that it was about talking about the sex as opposed to yeah. just the actual sex. It was about the communication. Exactly. That was what was the, where the erotic appeal is. I, I have to say that kind of gets it going for me, too. I and, and you know what? Once I did it, it got it going for me, too, but it was about yeah. walking through my own fear. It, the same way I would have to walk through my own fear about it in, in real life with a partner. Uh, with a straight married couple or just a man, usually a man. I haven't done a lot of straight married couples, <laughs> but um, it it is you have. I think, and I came out on the other side of it thinking it's actually very brave to do this. It is very brave to write in this genre because you really have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to lay your fantasies and your hopes and your expectations right out there on the page and hope that an audience that shares them connects. And I think it's much harder to do that, for me at least, than to be cynical, hard-boiled, and sarcastic, which is what we do mostly on this show. Right. right. <laughs> and we'll be back with more of that next right. week. Exactly. But, but in the meantime, The Flame is available at thedinnerpartyshow.com and uh, through Amazon exclusively for 90 days. And then it becomes available through other retailers after that 90-day period is up. Very exciting. And then The Flame includes links to all of the other books. All of the other That's ones. really, I think, and that's the, such an interesting way to market. The Flame will also include a link to The Surrender Gate, which is actually a romance novel that I will be publishing at the beginning of next year in Hot. February. Yeah. So this is the introduction of a whole world, a paranormal romantic world called the Desire Exchange that's going to be the umbrella under which all my erotic romances fall. So we'll see. It should be exciting. The another umbrella revolution. <laughs> Only hotter. <laughs> Only hotter and inside more. And maybe one of these days Eric Shaw Quinn will write an erotic romance novel. Too. Maybe so. We'll maybe. just have to see. We'll have to see. Meantime, we're busy with the Dinner Party Show. And as you said, we will be back with another live show next Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Right. Hope you had a great holiday. And uh, thanks for joining us tonight. Absolutely. And we will see you again very soon. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to the Dinner Party Show. Thanks.
I've been to a marvelous party. 